0: Good morning. It's good to see everybody here with us in the building and then uh, watching us via live stream. We're thankful that you're with us. Uh, again, it's already been mentioned, but this upcoming week is a vacation Bible school. I encourage you to uh, take some flyers and reach out into your neighborhood and bring your children, grandchildren, neighbors, whomever you can to that and come yourself and be a part of that. It's just a great uh, week and uh, we have a lot of people come from the community. So it's an opportunity for you to get to interact with other people. On Friday, we had that uh, uh, the Fourth of July uh, <coughs> celebration down here in downtown, and a lot of folks came and handed out VBS uh, flyers. So we'll see if uh, one tenth of the people come that the flyers were handed out, we may have a pretty po- pretty full building. But we'll pray to that end. And then, of course, the Lord decided to give a celestial light show before the fireworks started and all these poor people are running as fast as they can for cover because it just it's just downpoured but we're thankful just to be a part of that and interact with people Uh, a reminder if you attended the new members class and you want to uh, continue forward then turn that application in uh, by next sunday the 10th and give them to bob bob has a little folder he's putting them in if you hand them to me um, i will lose them Um, if you ever want to lose something permanently just hand it to me on a sunday and I'll make sure that <clears throat> that happens. People always go, don't you remember I gave it to you? And I was like, no, <clears throat> I have no idea what you're talking about. So a hand of the Bob, not to me. All right, now take your Bible and open to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 17 verses of the chapter here. Now, before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, uh, that he should depart out of this world uh, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, Rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, "Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and right for so I am. If then the Lord, if I then the Lord, the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who sent, neither is uh, one who is sent greater than the one who sent him." If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for, again, a time to meet this morning. And we thank you for the word that has uh, been pinned by you through the the Apostle John and for the wonderful things that uh, are about to unfold for us in these chapters uh, ahead of us. So we pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us and open our hearts and minds uh, to receive the truth. And may we grow in greater love for your God and for Christ our Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to chapter 13 this morning in our study in John, we are in a, a new section. This is, begins a new section of this most wonderful account of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, throughout the centuries, many Christians have, uh, uh, many believers have considered these chapters upcoming before some of the most precious parts of the, of the Bible. They've often described this uh, section as holy ground. Uh, because this section of Scripture is going to take us into a, the most personal, intimate, glorious fellowship uh, between the Lord and those who belong to him, those who are his own. It's going to tell them of the peculiar portion and privilege that belongs to them, that they have with him, as the Lord is going to unfold his power, his protection, and his peace, and most importantly his great uh, eternal love for them. So this really is just a wonderful portion of scripture that we're about to work our way into. Now as we closed out chapter 12 last time together, we saw that the Lord's Final invitation to the nation of Israel to repent and believe upon him as the Christ, or as the Messiah, has been rejected. Therefore, God's patience with the nation of Israel has run out. It's exactly what John said would happen at the beginning of the gospel. John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So for three long years in his ministry, Jesus had over and over proved the reality there was more than just a man, that he was indeed God's own son, that he was God incarnate, and there was absolutely no reason to miss him. No reason to not understand exactly who he is and who he claimed to be other than men's pride, other than men's love of sin, other than men's hatred of righteousness. Therefore, they just outright reject the truth and they outright rejected him. And that's exactly what the nation has done on a whole. They've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They've rejected mankind's only hope of forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. Therefore, his public ministry has come to an end. John chapter 12, verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke, and here it is, and he departed and hid himself from them. So Jesus repeatedly warned there was a day coming that it would be too late. A day coming when it would be too late for them to believe upon him. And Jesus repeatedly warned that those who rejected him... He says, you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin, John 8 and 24. It's a warning to the nation of Israel, not only to the nation of Israel, but it really is a warning to all men everywhere. Because Jesus Christ is the only hope of mankind for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. And as we've said often through this series, the most important issue in your life is what you think of the person of Jesus Christ. Because what you think of the person of Jesus Christ affects you both in time and in eternity. Now, as we come to these verses here again, beginning in chapter 13, all of this is taking place on Thursday night. It's Thursday night, the final week of our life's, uh, our Lord's life here on the earth, which is commonly known as the Passion Week. You remember that he enters into Jerusalem and literally hundreds of thousands of people are hailing him as the Messiah. I suggested to you that perhaps rather than Sunday, it's probably on a Monday. On Tuesday, he assaults and attacks the temple because it has become a place of false satanic worship. So he throws out the money changers, the buyers and sellers, and he overtakes the temple on Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, he holds court in the temple, as it were. He teaches, again, final truths. He communicates to the people final truth. And at some point, he makes that dramatic statement in verse 36 of chapter 12, and then he hides himself. He withdraws from public ministry. He withdraws himself from the, from the crowd. So again, his public ministry is over. So what takes place next in, in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 all take place uh, the night before Jesus was taken prisoner and crucified on Friday. So he got three years in the first 12 chapters and he got one night compacted in and then one in, in uh, chapters uh, 13 through 17 and then the events following uh, the crucifixion Uh, and the remainder of the book. Chapter 17 is what's known as the high priestly prayer. It's our Lord's intimate uh, prayer with his Father. It's kind of an inside look, if you will, uh, into the Holy of Holies, into the Son's communication with God the Father. And then again, chapter 18 and following deals with uh, the death, uh, the crucifixion, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what unfolds here in these next chapters before us really is the heart of the Lord's ministry to his disciples. This is his personal interaction with them. This is him preparing them for his departure. Uh, this is a privileged behind-the-scenes look, again, if you will, at what Christ entered into with him. So that he can make sure that his disciples understand his love for them in his absence. That though he is about to leave and go back to the Father, he's not going to leave them alone. He told them in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28... He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this Thursday evening, is uh, we're just uh, the night before, literally, of this uh, uh, verse being literally fulfilled. Right? Thursday night before the Friday crucifixion. Now, if he is going to leave and go back to the Father, which again, they don't in the context understand yet, although he's told them repeatedly throughout the other gospel accounts. It would be natural for them to think if he's going to leave and his ministry, quote-unquote, is over, maybe it's over for them. That's not the truth. That's what he wants them to understand here. So in these upcoming chapters, Jesus is going to give a practical demonstration of his continuing love for his disciples. He's going to assure them of the hope that they have of heaven. He's going to guarantee them power for ministry. He's going to guarantee the fact that he will make provisions for their needs. Then he's going to promise to send them the person of the Holy Spirit who will encourage them in understanding and remembering divine truth, the word of God. And then the person of the Holy Spirit will give them ongoing peace and joy. And the common theme that runs through these five chapters upcoming is Christ's love for his own. So as the earthly ministry of Christ Again, to the crowds is drawn to a close. The night before his crucifixion, he is seeking to reassure his disciples of the enduring love that he has for them. Therefore, John records this most wonderful section of scripture that is primarily designed to show them the love that Jesus Christ has for them, but not only designed to show them the love that Jesus Christ has for them, but the love that Jesus Christ has for us. And it's a tremendous portion of scripture. Not not just love that goes to the cross, but love that goes in the context that says all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Arthur Pink says this, his return to the Father would neither terminate nor diminish his activities the activities of his love for his own. In heaven he is still occupied with the interests of his people. And that's true today. In heaven he is still occupied with the interests of we his people. So all the promises that are made here in John 12 or John 13 in the context are made to his disciples, but they really extend to all true believers and to every true Christian throughout the ages. In fact, the section comes to an end in chapter 17 verse 20. The Lord says this, he says, I do not ask, I do not ask on behalf of these alone in the context of the disciples. I do not ask on behalf of the disciples alone, but for those who believe in me through their, through their word. So, again, it's a promise of encouragement in the chapters upcoming, again, to the disciples, but then to all believers, down to us, and then as the Lord tarries, even to the end of the age, all true believers in the person of Jesus Christ. So, again, it's just a tremendously encouraging portion of Scripture. Now, there's a lot in the section coming up, the chapter 13 through 17, that's not recorded anywhere else. You won't find it in the synoptics, right? You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, because, again, this is a one-off, one-of-a-kind look. This is a behind the scene look, if you will. This is a privileged revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit given to them and then given to us, to believers in Christ, uh, to, again, show us the tremendous love that Christ has for us. And, again, many many of the portions of the details that John leaves out at the end of the Passion Week here uh, that, that again, because of his intimate, detailed purpose to show the love of Christ to those who belong to him, obviously the other synoptic writers include it in, in their accounts. Of the Olivet Discourse. You're not going to find that in this section. Uh, the Institution of the Lord's Supper. You're not going to find that in this portion because it's recorded elsewhere. Right? So and that's fine because, again, the, the point of John here, the design of John here is to encourage those who belong to Christ as they walk through this world in his physical absence. In the physical absence of the Savior, he wants to encourage them. He wants them. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us all to know of his great care and, and his great love for us. So again, this is sometime on a Thursday night. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson to help you uh, uh, kind of bring some of this together. The the Galileans celebrated Passover on Thursday. The Judeans celebrated Passover on Friday. So in in the country, Passover celebrations began on a Thursday night, and it has to do with the way a day uh, was calculated. We know from uh, history, from Josephus, uh, His writings, the Mishnah, other uh, Jewish uh, sources, that the Jews in northern Palestine calculated days from sunrise to sunrise. Jews in northern Palestine, that would have included the region of Galilee where Jesus was from and where all of his disciples save uh, uh, Judas were from. That's where they had grown up. That's how they thought about days. It seems that most of the Pharisees calculated days that way, from sunrise to sunrise. But in the south, towards uh, on the southern uh, portion of Israel, uh, which centered in Jerusalem, they calculated a day from sunset to sunset. All the priests necessarily lived near uh, Jerusalem, as did most of the Sadducees. So that's the the groups in the south. That's the scheme they followed: sunset to sunset. So you really got two calendars, two different ways to calculate days. And there are some practical benefits, especially during the time of the Passover, because it allows for the feast to be uh, celebrated legitimately on two adjoining days, thereby permitting the temple sacrifices to be made over a period of four hours rather than two. And it's also helpful to uh, deal with some of the issues that, because of the size and the population, uh, uh, made things at times difficult to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. You might remember that I told you there may be as well as many as up to two and a half million people at the Passover in this tiny little city, and made the the uh, issue over the task of sacrificing lambs uh, very complicated. But space everywhere was tight. Right, just a place to stay. Just trying to walk through the crowds. Uh, just finding a home or getting a meal. Everything was full. So by having this double calendar, it allowed for the time of the sacrifices to double. Therefore, it had an effect of alleviating some of these kind of physical problems. And at the same time, it reduced some of the religious uh, clashes, the uh, regional religious clashes that often happen between different groups of people from the north and the south. I don't know if you ever noticed that people from different areas sometimes don't get along just because they're from the north or they're from the south right so nothing's new under the sun right so understanding this double calendar it kind of explains why there are apparent contradictions between the gospel accounts on when the passover was celebrated Again, the northerners being from Galilee, and Jesus and his disciples considered the Passover day to start at sunrise on Thursday and end on sunrise on Friday. The Jewish religious leaders who arrested and tried Jesus, again, being mostly priests and, and Sadducees from the South, they considered the Passover day to start on sunset Thursday and then on sunset on Friday. So again, that's why Jesus could legitimately celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday and yet still be sacrificed on the Passover on Friday. Right? He was sacrificed on Friday, the day of preparation. John uh, chapter 19 verse 14 says, again, that's the day of Jesus' trial, uh, crucifixion, then execution. Now, of course, the Passover celebrated God's deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt. They had been in captivity for 400 uh, years. Uh, You, I'm sure, are familiar with the story. God sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptian. The last, uh, the Egyptians, the last plague was the plague of death. Every firstborn in the family died unless God saw the blood of the sacrificed lamb sprinkled on the uh, uh, doorposts uh, and and then on top of the lintel. So God had told uh, the nation of Israel to escape this coming uh, uh, wrath, uh, that they were were to kill a spotless lamb, take that blood and then apply it to the doorposts and to the top of the door, and so that he would pass over when he saw the blood and he would spare the life of the firstborn. And the reason that they were spared is because they were obedient to what God commanded them to do. And they were covered by the blood of the Lamb. So the Passover celebration was that which commemorated the skipping of God's judgment. It was a feast that was held on the 14th day of Nisan, which would have been equivalent to our our March, April. On the 15th day began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a feast named after the type of bread that they used when uh, Israel escaped the land of Egypt in haste uh, from their bondage. It was bread without yeast, bread without leaven, uh, which is used to make uh, bread soft, to make it rise. And leaven is used throughout the scripture to represent influence, and it's usually in the context of evil influence. So God wanted the nation... Israel to leave behind all of its evil influence of their pagan captors in Egypt. So when they fled and set out for their new life, they took unleavened bread. And that unleavened bread, again, is a symbol of leaving behind the old, the old evil ways and cutting themselves off from the worldly influence as they started anew. Now, according to Exodus chapter 12, the lamb for the Passover had to be selected on the 10th of Nisan, And that lamb was taken into the family, and it lived with the family. And if you've ever seen a little tiny lamb, they're kind of cute, they're soft, they're white. They saw that as kind of a pet. Everybody became attached to it. The children, obviously, you bring any kind of animal into the house, right? The children, obviously, they grow in their affection for that pet. And this family grew in affection for that little lamb that was part of their family for those days. And then they slaughtered it. it, slit its throat. So, everybody would feel the pain. Everybody would feel the tremendous pain and terror, the cost of sin that happened in the terrible death of that little innocent lamb. Josephus, the historian, said that at one typical Passover celebration, again, over 256,000 lambs were slaughtered, which means, again, there could have been upwards of two and a half million people or more in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover because there needed to be at least 10 people per lamb in the passover celebration now what's interesting about that is not just the great uh, numbers of lambs that were slaughtered but the time frame that this all had to take place in these lambs were slain within a two-hour period of time exodus 12 verse 6 says the lambs were to be killed uh were had to be killed at twilight or in the Hebrew, it's literally between the two evenings Josephus says that's between the 9th and the 11th hour of the Jewish day. So that would have been between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Listen, that's about 128,000 lambs per hour. That's over 2,100 per minute, over 35 per second. I mean, the numbers are literally just staggering. Because all these lambs had to be slaughtered within this two-hour time period. And because of that there's an enormous amount of blood that is pouring out from the altar within a very short period of time and eventually it's draining out the back of the temple down to the Kidron Valley east of the temple. And so for several days after the Passover that made the brook a bright crimson red. So literally a river of blood is flowing out of the back of the temple down the slope into the valley that filled the brook Kidron. Again it's just another reminder of the necessity of the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin, and just another reminder of the innocent being sacrificed for the guilty. And of course we know that none of these sacrifices, not one of these lambs could ever take away sin. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10 and 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All of the sacrifices at the time of the Passover, all the sacrifices throughout the Old Testament were nothing more than a picture of the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice, the blessed one, the sinless one, the spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Son. The Son of God himself was about to make his way to Calvary's cross to offer himself as the one final atonement, the one final sacrifice for sin. Now again, back to our text, or beginning our text here in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who are his own in the world, loved them to the end. So again, Jesus' public ministry is over. And Jesus is turning from the public ministry, from those who have rejected him, to his private ministry, to those who have received him. He came to his own, and those who are his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become the children of God, even, as those, even those who believe upon his name. John 1, 11 and 12. So again, before the feast of the Passover, again, it's Thursday night. The night that Galileans celebrated the Passover. The night before Jesus will be crucified. The night before that he will die as the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God, the only lamb. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Before the, peace, the, before the feast of the Passover. Now, I want you to do something. I want you to just put a mark there in your Bible. And I want us to go back in time a little bit. I want us to go back (laughs) earlier in the day, so turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 26. And Matthew chapter 26 helps us understand earlier in the day on Thursday what's going on. Matthew 26 verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, the, the Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread happen so close together, it's really a, an eight day long celebration that the, the, the two names are pretty interchangeable in essence. Right, so h- how do you want us to prepare to eat the Passover? They, they would have already acquired the lamb, because they did that on Monday, right? They did that earlier in the week. They uh, would have already prepared the unleavened bread, but there's still many other things they need to gather for the Passover, and what they don't have is a place to eat the meal. And the law prescribed that they had to take the Passover meal within the city limits of Jerusalem, so they need a place. And I just told you, there's lots of people. I mean, spaces are tight. Lots of people, so try to find a room to... Uh, celebrate the passover might be difficult for most people but not for jesus on the first day of unleavened bread the disciples came to jesus and again matthew doesn't tell us who they are but uh, luke and mark identify them as peter and john they're the ones that jesus chose to take care of the issues on the first day the unleavened bread the disciples came to jesus saying where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the passover verse 18 He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. He said, go to the city to a certain man. In the Greek, it's the word dinon. And the King James says, go to the city to such a man. Now... In the Greek, the word dina is what's known in the Greek language as a hepax legomena, meaning it's only a word that's used one time in the entire Bible. It's just one time off, and here it is. Never used anywhere else. And the word means such a one, a certain one, one whose name I do not wish to name, a certain somebody somebody, or Mr. So-and-so so jesus literally says to peter and john i want you to go to the city i want you to find mr so-and-so i'm not going to tell you who his name is but you go find this certain man seems like an easy task to pull off i mean there's only two and a half million people in the city so i guess you do what you do you just start right hello are you mr so-and-so no hello are you mr so-and-so no well, only got 2,499,998 more to go, right? Jesus literally says to these men, we need a room, I want you to go to the city, I want you to find a certain man, I'm not going to tell you his name, I'm not going to tell you who he is, I'm not going to tell you his address, but you hurry along and you go find him. Now, why would he do that? One of two options. Either he doesn't know, or he doesn't say but Jesus knows everything so you can scratch that one off your list so it leaves only the second option he doesn't want to say Mark in his uh, version of this is out a little bit you don't have to turn there but I'll just read it for you Mark 14 verse 13 he says he sent to his disciples and said to them go to the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water following him that's a little bit helpful because it's unusual in the culture because men don't carry uh, pitchers of water normally women do that So to help them find who Jesus is sending them after, Jesus says, look for a man who's carrying a pitcher of water. Mark continues, the man will meet you and carrying a pitcher of water, follow him wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you to a large upper room furnished and ready, prepared for us there. Now, we don't know if that perhaps this man in Jesus prepared this thing or set this whole thing up ahead of time. Or if this man is a friend or a follower of Christ. Or just in response to the simple uh, statement the teacher needs, right, he agrees with the issue. We don't know, but we do know that in any event, the man is going to comply. Now, why doesn't Christ say who this man is outright? Why the secrecy? I'll give you a second to think about it. It's two words. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Right after Bethany, uh, uh, Mary of Bethany anoints Christ with costly perfume, Judas leaves immediately in order to go find the religious leaders of Israel so he can betray them. Look back up at verse 14 of, Mark, or of uh, Matthew 26. Verse 14 of Matthew 26. Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, are you willing to give me or are you willing to deliver him uh what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver and from then on he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So again all week long during what is known as the passion week of Christ, Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Christ. And no doubt if Jesus would have said to Peter and John, I need a room, I want you to go to Mr. Smith's house at 45 West Church Street. What is this address? Then no doubt Judas would have given that information to the religious leaders and they would have arrested Jesus before the Passover. But it's essential that Jesus keeps the Passover. He obviously wants to obey the Mosaic law, but even more importantly, Jesus is going to take the Passover meal and turn it into the Lord's Supper. And no longer is there going to be a remembrance of escape from the bondage of physical slavery in Egypt, but now forevermore there's going to be a remembrance of physical, spiritual escape from sin. And the judgment of God, because of the shed blood of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb, he is the one who's going to provide that escape from sin. So it's essential that he keeps the Passover. In Matthew 26, verse 18, he said, uh, Go to the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher, Didaskalos, the rabbi, says, My time is at hand. The word time there is karios. It's not chronos, not, not chronological time, not minutes and hours, but uh, karios, the end of a fixed, definitive period of time. The predetermined time that God had given Christ. To be on this earth, that's what he's saying. In essence, the moment of my death is near. The time, the predetermined amount of time is running out. The purpose, the time in which for the purpose that I've come, it's running out. My special time is at hand. Because Jesus knows it's literally hours before his death. Again, the time predetermined before the foundation of the world is going is to come. And that time is coming to an end when he comes and presents himself as the final sacrifice for sin. He knows it's close. My special time is at hand. The teacher says, my time is at hand, and I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, a little technicality in the Greek there. In the Greek language, that whole sentence there is known as a prophetic tense, uh, prophetic present tense. And and what it says is this. In the present tense verb, present tense verbs that are presented in the future... So he's not just present, but it's like future present. And so what he's saying, look, this has already happened. This is an obligation is what he's saying. I'm obligated. It's already been predetermined. I'm obligated to keep the Passover in your house with my disciples. So again, the very place that he's going to celebrate the Passover has been predetermined. Christ is on a divine mission. And part of that divine mission is to celebrate the Passover with his disciples before he's executed. So again, it just tells you again that every aspect of our Lord's life while he's here on the earth is divinely directed. Every aspect of our Lord's life, he is in control of all the events. He's not a victim. He's a willing participant out of love, right? Willingly, he voluntarily lays down his life for his own. John 10 and 17, he says, For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down I have the authority to take it up again. So again, Jesus isn't a victim. He's a willing participant in the eternal plan of the redemption of God's people through the sacrifice that he will give on the next day. So again, part of the mission, part of the plan is this celebration of the Passover with his disciples. The commentator Tasker says this. He says, as the sacrifice he was about to offer was to be an act of redemption... Such was a foreshadow by the redemption of Israel from Egypt, commemorated every Passover. Tasker says it was necessary that he eat this Passover meal with his disciples on the night before he was to die, and that the Passover atmosphere conveyed to them by word and symbol the significance of his death for themselves and for all mankind. So again, the Lord is going to take the last Passover meal and turn it into the Lord's Supper. And he has to have them have this visual picture to understand exactly what he's doing for them as he goes to the cross on the next day. So again, Jesus is under divine compulsion, divine obligation to keep the Passover. And again, he's doing it willingly. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. Stop and consider the intensity and the focus of the person of Jesus Christ, and specifically the focus of his love. He's not caught off guard. He knows much more than we do. He knows what's going to happen in just a few hours. He knows what's going to happen in just a few hours, and he's aware of the betrayal. He's aware of what awaits him the mock trials. He's aware of the intense physical and spiritual suffering that he's about to endure on the cross. He knows what's coming, yet he's determined to be obedient to God. And he worships God with his obedience. He's going to carry out to the very end the very purpose for which he's come into the world. He's going to eat that meal, which is a sign of friendship, which again he's going to turn into a memorial concerning his death. And he's going to willingly eat this meal with a group of disciples that in a few hours are going to what? Desert him. They're going to all turn away from him. And in this act of selfless obedience, not only is Christ worshiping his father, but he's pledging himself to these men and his undying love for them. Luke 22, verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's pledging his undying love for them although he knows that they will desert him. So stop and consider the focus, the intensity, the focus of Christ's love. And again, consider not only the intensity of the focus of Christ's love for the disciples in front of him, but stop and consider the focus of Christ's love for you if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper at the end of our time together, by way of command of the Lord when he gave it to his disciples, he said, this is my body, which is for, I'm sorry, for you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Stop and consider the words of the hymn writer. who says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Verse 19 says, The disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared the Passover. So the disciples meet the man carrying the pitcher. They make all the necessary preparations and everything is going to happen exactly as Christ says. That's earlier in the day on Thursday. Now go back to John 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, which is nothing more than an absolute slaughter, which again looked to the past for God's redemption of the, his people from the nation of Egypt, but it was also a celebration that looked forward to the future because they all knew there was an ultimate deliverer coming an ultimate passover lamb who would come and set the nation free from their sin which obviously jesus christ is that ultimate passover fulfillment paul first corinthians 5 verse 7 says christ our passover has also been sacrificed christ is the ultimate picture of all the types and and shadows from the old testament it all pointed to him Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, always previously, it was his his time had not yet come. John 2 and 4, my hour has not yet come. John 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time is not yet at hand. John 7, verse 30, they were seeking therefore to seize him, and no man lays his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20, no one sees him because his hour had not yet come. But here is different. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, again, Jesus was never taken by surprise. In fact, in John 18, verse 4, it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him. Right? Jesus knew all things that were coming upon him. And therefore, again, everything that he did nothing caught him off guard and everything that he did was under the divine direction of the presence by the will of his father according to the eternal plan of god jesus knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of the world to the father again jesus knew perfectly beforehand when and how he would suffer and jesus had finished all the work that the father had sent him to do up to this point and will finish it on the morrow the next day when he goes to the cross he saw the cross clearly before him, and he walked straight to it. Again, his death is not a surprise to him. It's voluntarily, and it's foreknown. Right? It's voluntary, and it's a foreknown event. Because Jesus, again, is in absolute control of everything that happens to him. He's not a victim of men. He's not a victim of evil scheming or men's evil schemes. He knew the exact plan. He knew God's plan. He knew God's purpose for him when he entered into the world. And now the time had come. And when he departs, he knows exactly where he's going. In fact, John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to the heavens, said to the Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4 of that chapter, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he was sent from eternity into time, and now he's going back to the Father, But this time, when he goes back to the Father, he's not going alone. He's going to bring back with him all those whom God has fixed his eternal, everlasting, saving love upon. Those who repent and place their faith upon the sacrificed lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who are in the world. Now again, the dominant theme of the chapter's upcoming is love. It's the most common repeated word. The chapter begins, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Having loved his own, he were in the, uh, who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Chapter 14, verse 21, he who has my commandment and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. I will love him and disclose myself to him. John 15, verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. John 15, verse 12, this is the commandment. Uh, That you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. John 16, verse 27. The Father loves you, and you have loved me, and have believed that I have come forth from the Father. And the whole thing ends chapter 17, verse um, 26. I have made your name known. No, it's talking to the Father. I have made your name known to them, and will make it known. That the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the section begins with love and it ends with love. Again, love is the most common word that's repeated in the section. Uh, It's the common theme. The word is used uh, 34 times in the next four chapters. Now, some commentators have noted that there are more references to the Savior's love for his own in this section of Scripture... Uh, Upcoming than anywhere else in the Bible. So obviously there are other portions of the scripture that speak to the love of God for his own, but when it comes down to, to comes to the issue of loving his own, this is really the high point of the scripture. Just repeat it over and over and over again. The time has come. And the time has come for the Lord to display his immense love by going to the cross for his own. Having, look, again, loved his own believers, those who are given to him by the Father. Those who are under his own special care as members of his body. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them. And here's the phrase, to the end. Tell us. To the end. Termination. Uh, The the word signifies to perfection, completeness. It's it's emblematic of an unbreakable love. It's a love that once started will never come to a completion. Completion. It signifies that Jesus loves his own with the fullest fullest measure of love. It means perfectly, fully, utterly, in the vernacular, to the max. To the end, in both in terms of uh, capacity and time, capacity and eternity. Uh, he loves us to the end, loving us as much as he can love, as much as God can love. That's how much Christ loves us. That's how long he loves us, how much he loves us. As much as God can love, he loves us in length, time-wise, infinitely. Eternally. Now, obviously, we understand from the Scripture, there's a sense in which God loves the world, John 3 and 16, right? the world of lost sinners, but he loves his own with a perfect, eternal, everlasting, redeeming love. Having loved his own who are in the world. Again, there is a distinguishing love of God for those who belong to Him, His own. We who belong to Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians six verse nineteen, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. So again, it's 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 the person of of God who is showing the demonstration of His love for His people. And the Holy Spirit, through the, the pen uh, of the writer, is declaring his love for those who are his own. Those who belong to him. Those who belong to him because of, uh, of the electing eternal love of the Father. They're the Father's love gift to the Son. Chosen before Christ, before the foundation of the world. Or chosen in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. His own. We who belong to Christ because of his redemptive love, of the one who paid such a high price for us, the one who bought us back to himself for himself. 1 Peter 1 and 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Paul, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Paul, Ephesians 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself for his own. We who belong to Christ by the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, who eventually transforms and changes us in Christ. John 15, verse 16, Christ saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans eight, twenty-eight: we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ Galatians 1.6 I'm amazed at you so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel 2 Timothy 1.9 God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, we've been called And again, because we've been called by the electing love of the Father, we're going to be transformed and changed. We repeat this verse often around here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Having loved his own who are in the world. It's true that God has a love for the world in a generic sense, a general sense. But it's also true that God has a particular redeeming love for those who are his own. A special love for those who are his own. Now we as men in the fellowship here, we have a love for our sisters in Christ, and rightly we should. But more importantly than that, we have a special love reserved only for our wives. Right? Right? And again, that's the way it should be, because Christ has a special love reserved only for his bride, the church. We love all the kids. The room's full of them. But each of us in the room, as parents, we have a special love for our own, for our own children. And again, Jesus has a love for the world, but a special love for his own. The, the ones whom the Father has given him, John 6 and 37, Christ says, All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Again, having loved his own, her, and the world, it's not uh, just some kind of sentimental, emotional feeling. It's a sovereign, electing, gracious, redeeming, unconditional love, a fixed, eternal love that God provides for the salvation, the eternal salvation, the eternal blessing, the eternal glory of his own, and it's at a price. His shed blood. And it's a love from which those who are his own, those who belong to him, can never be separated from. Romans 8 verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves us to the end knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of the world to the father having loved his own who are in the world he loved them to the end again christ is getting ready to depart he's going to go back to his father his disciples need to know in the upcoming hours what's about to happen because they don't know he does they need to know that he has a tremendous love for them they they need the assurance of his love for them Because they're about to face something they haven't faced for the last three years. They're about to face life without him. He's going to repeatedly tell them of his love. He's going to tell them that he's not leaving them alone. He's not leaving and departing and leaving them as orphans. John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the the world cannot receive Because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and he will be with you. I won't leave you alone. Because he loved them to the end. And again, not just to the cross. He loved them to the end, not just to the last, but to the furthest extent of their need, to the furthest extent of his grace. Uh, Again, it's an unbreakable love, a love that once started will never be completed. It'll never come to completion. Again, in the context of the disciples, so they might have hope and the terror that's about to unfold in their lives in the next 24 hours or so. But again, it's a promise to us. He's going to promise. He has made the promise to us who are in Christ, we who are his own to the furthest extent of our need, to the furthest extent of his grace, uh, grace, an an unbreakable love that once started in our life will never come to completion. His love for us. He loved them to the end. And again, it's a, it signifies the love that Jesus has for his own with a foolish measure of love, a perfect, fully, utterly to the end kind of love, both again in terms of capacity and eternity. Again, it's loving us as much as God can love us, as much as the person of God can love us. That's how much Jesus Christ loves us. That's how much... Jesus Christ loves us infinitely, eternally. And again, something that no matter what happens to us in time will never come to an end. Now in the context, Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him. He knew that Thomas was going to doubt him. He knew that in his greatest hour of need, his men would all turn away from him. Yet John says he loved them to the end. Arthur Pink adds this. He says, And so it is with us, dear Christian. His own, who are objects of his love unto the end, is the extent of his love to them. He loves us to the end of our miserable failures, unto the end of our wanderings and backslidings, unto the end of our unworthiness, to the end of our deep need. He loves us to the end. Now, before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, again, Jesus already knows what's coming up. He knows the cross is imminently before him with all the anticipation of its horror, mixed in there with the joy of returning to his Father and all the conflicting emotions that most certainly both of these... uh, contrasting realities had to produce within him but he never wavered in his love for his own he never wavered in his love for those whom he had loved to the end and again i've said it numerous times but i'll repeat it it's the same thing for us because our god is the same what yesterday today and forever it never changes He loved them with an eternal love. He has loved us with an eternal love. He loved them with an everlasting, redemptive, electing love, and he loves us likewise. With a divine love that is different from all other forms of love. The Bible calls this kind of love agape. It's a love that is above all else sacrificial. It's a love that is self-sacrificing for the sake of others, even for those who may not care anything for that one who demonstrates that love, even for those who may hate that one who's demonstrating that kind of love. Agape love is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. It always results in determined acts of self-giving. Agape love is the kind of love that is willingly and joyfully desiring to put the welfare of others above their own. Agape love leaves no room for pride or vanity or arrogance or self-seeking or self-glory. Agape love is is an act of choice that we are commanded to exercise as believers, even on behalf of our enemies, because agape love is the same kind of love with which Christ has loved us. And demonstrated towards us. Romans five eight God demonstrating His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ steadfastly determined to do. Romans five ten If while we were enemies, we are reconciled to the death of His Son. Right? Even while we were enemies, Christ designed to love us when we were sinners. So Christ has a date with Calvary's cross. It's coming up very soon. So John opens up the 13th chapter with this wonderful explanation of the tremendous love that Christ has for those who are his own, whom he will purchase again on the next day at great personal cost to him. And then immediately, verse 2, we're confronted with a great contrast. The greatest of all contrasts, because between Christ's love for His own and Judas's satanic treachery, a love that's spurned, a love that's rejected. Verse two. During the supper, or during supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon the betrayer. Th- this great picture of. Of love that I've tried in my weakness to try to give you a list, at least a little bit of a picture of in verse one. And then immediately you have this tremendously sad, ugly, disastrous, eternal, damning choice that Judas makes. And then as the text goes on, the Lord's going to give a great example, right, to capture our hearts to the extent of his love. For his disciples and the, the feet washing, and it's much more than just washing feet. It's a tremendous portion of Scripture. The eternal creator, God, the Savior of the universe, is gonna bow down and humble himself. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because it's not in my notes, but I don't it, but, but it's not the, the it's not just the washing of the feet. That's not the issue, it's the humility. That the eternal creator God can bow before those who have reviled him, those who are his enemies at one time, those who have hated him, those who have no idea of who he is and what he's about to do for them. You don't understand now, but you will later. The condescending love that God has shown to us through the person of Jesus Christ. The great example of eternal love that God has poured out upon our life Through the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, come into this world for us to die in our place. Now, there's a lot more in the portion of scripture before us, but we're going to have to wait. And Lord willing, we'll get to it next time. And it's going to take us right into the the Lord's Supper here. So uh, let me just pause for a moment, take a breath. We'll pray, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, we are indeed humbled by your great love poured out upon us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus Christ, we're obviously humbled for Your by your love for us. May we really stop and think and contemplate the reality of that great love. And may that cause us to hate our own sin. May that cause us to be motivated to serve you, to to love you and to love others around us even as you have loved us. Those in our spheres of influence, those in our families, those who have yet come to a knowledge and an understanding of the truth. May you use us as uh, ambassadors, as you've called us to be, of your great grace, your great love for men, for those who would bow the knee, repent, and come to mercy that is full and free through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.